This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump's statistical discovery software from SAS. Jump's powerful, easy to use visualization capabilities allow you to both explore your data for hidden insights and create interactive graphics that tell a compelling story. Enhance your presentations with dynamic graphics powered by world class analytics in Jump. Visit www.jmp.com to download a 30-day free trial to see for yourself how with Jump, data visualization and exploratory analysis go hand in hand. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm joined today on the show by Evan Sinar, a chief scientist and vice president at Development Dimensions International outside of Pittsburgh. Evan, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much, John, for inviting me. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, you have quite an interesting background, a field that I'm not that familiar with, so I'm, I'm excited to learn more about what you do, both at DDI and some of the other things that you work on with big data and, and data visualization. But why don't we start, maybe you just give folks a little bit uh, information about yourself and, and about the, the field that you work in. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, I'm in a role right now where I'm uh, in a role as our chief scientist and vice president of a group called the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Research here at DDI. And the short version of that is really the hub for, for all things research at, uh, at DDI. And that could range from research we're conducting with individual clients uh, about uh, the effectiveness, the program evaluation of the, the systems they have in place. We're a leadership consulting firm, uh, so we're often asked to conduct analyses and help clients conduct their own analyses on how well those programs are working and how they can work better. Uh, so that's one facet of, of my group's work. We also get involved in some uh, trend research studies where we gather data ourselves, either uh, by compiling data from the simulations and assessments that we run uh, when evaluating individuals for leadership roles, or uh, we also conduct some large-scale survey projects. And so my group is involved with, with compiling those and ultimately analyzing and then representing and presenting those, those data back out uh, through some market-facing uh, research and then, again, paired with the, the client-specific uh, outputs that we're providing. And in terms of my, my background, and you, you alluded to this, uh, my, my background's in uh, industrial organizational psychology, uh, and, and we can talk a bit more about that in a minute. In, in, as part of my role, we're often asked to, to produce and conduct this research and then present it back out, so I've had the chance to uh, do some authoring on this topic. Uh, so within, within the field of biopsychology, we, we recently, uh, myself and some colleagues, uh, were editing a book on big data at work. And they had asked me about writing the data visualization chapter, which at the time uh, I hadn't hadn't really developed much depth in the area other than just some, some general interest. And uh, after getting into it, I, I spent uh, probably the better part of a year really digging into the topic and then turning that back around into this this chapter. So uh, the ability to really take take a deeper dive and author uh, some content has been uh, an increasingly uh, important part of my role for, for what I do here at DDI. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to do IO Psych? First off, it's an awesome abbreviation, but can you uh, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about you know what that is? I mean, you talked a little bit about what you do at DDI, but what is sure. the sort of field in general? What, what does that what does that mean to to work in that field? Sure. So it's it's an applied uh, facet of psychology, of course. So it's got all the the, the psychology background that, that you would expect, but it's applied specifically towards the workplace. So I think the the way I tend to think of it is it's science of people at work, 
And what we try to do is we help organizations build engaging, safe, and productive workplaces. And uh, we try to help employees succeed. Uh, we work very closely with the leadership at organizations to to give them the skills they need and the, the tools they need to build and sustain a positive work environment for employees because there's a long history of research showing that the more satisfied employees are, the more engaged they are. It leads to uh, healthier and more successful organizations overall. A major focus is also on matching employees to companies. So what are the skills that employees are going to need for uh, particular jobs and how can we help make sure that they have them as well as help them grow and develop those skills once once they're on the job. Uh, so there's a real deep foundation of psychometrics, statistics, analysis uh, as part of the field because uh, there's there's a high degree of, of rigor that goes into these processes because if you're making decisions about people, this is a, a critical life decision for many people, where, where they work, how they work, how they uh, progress through these organizations. We as a field want to make sure that those decisions are made rigorously, fairly, uh, with high degree of validity. So there's a, a strong research heritage there in the field. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that that the field has been collecting data on on characteristics of people and characteristics of employees and and using statistical models and and, and that sort of thing. How has the use of data changed in the field over over the time that you've been working in the field? Have you seen uh, data change to big data? Have uh, the types of data that people are collecting and using and how they collect it, has that changed? How, How is that field evolving with this you know, newfound sort of appreciation, as it were, appreciation or value of data. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. So there's a long history of, of data and, and the gathering of data. I think what's really changed is on the audience side uh, from the perspective of business decision makers. So um, for for a while there, and I think it's still, still largely continuing, it seemed like uh, just about every major business publication was uh, was noting the the big data trend, Harvard Business Review and other publications that senior business leaders uh, were reading and are reading. And so that really drove an increased level of attention, awareness, and really, I would say, respect for uh, data to drive business decisions. And so that that gave gave us as a field an opportunity to connect uh, the work that we'd, we'd historically been doing to the other side of the equation, which, of course, is the, the demand and interest coming from uh, coming from the business leaders, I, I do think that the the amount of data has been increasing, and and this, of course, is a relative thing. Every every field, I think, has different thresholds for what they would consider big data, and uh, so we're working. You know, we as a field work with multinational corporations, which of course have, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of employees, and so that that adds, adds up pretty quickly to uh, some large data sets, uh, especially when you consider we're often looking across many different variables. Uh, for those individuals, so the the use of of surveys to evaluate employee engagement, for example, or some of the new tools that are coming online, such as wearable uh, devices that will help uh, organizations understand where individuals are going, who they're interacting with. So there's other new data sources coming online that are continuing to contribute towards those those V's of big data, the the volume, the variety, uh, the velocity. I would also say that the there's there's been a, a distinct trend towards towards data-driven decision-making, which also means that it's away from uh, more of a gut instinct uh, form of, of decision-making. 
And uh, increasingly with, with our clients and, and I would say with the, the business community more broadly, that's, that's rarely enough anymore. It's rarely enough just to have your experience drive a decision. There's typically some, some expectation and really demand at this point for evidence to, to back up the decisions. There's often high degree of, of financial or operational risk associated with these decisions that organizations are viewing data as a key input to that to help them make those decisions accurately and effectively. Mm-hmm. And have people in the field sort of changed how they approach their analysis of data when the data are getting bigger? Or are the tools, I mean, what, what are the sort of standard tools that people in the, in the IO psych field are using? Can they sort of handle the, the new wave of data? Or is it sort of a sea change in the tools that people are using, the analysis they're conducting? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I think a little of both, certainly. I think there are some foundational types of analyses, like various forms of regression, for example, linear regression that have been right. in place for, for decades, of course. But now I think there's a push towards some of the more advanced regression models and, and more advanced statistical models that deal with a wider variety of data sets, data sets with uh, a wider range of distributional characteristics, for example, uh, so I think that that's still, I think the, the, the foundations are there with some of the standard analysis tools still still being appropriate, but uh, the, the recognition is, is increasing uh, quite, uh, quite quickly towards some of these more advanced measures. And that's, that's where I think the, the, the bridge occurs between a field like IO psychology and some of the, the, and the broader data science community and really what we can learn from them, but also what, what they can learn from us. I think uh, another, something that IO psychologists bring that other fields, I think, are, are a bit newer in is some of the way of thinking about data coming from, from people and, and the fact that people need to know that data are being gathered and used appropriately. Sometimes there are legal issues associated with how decisions are made uh, based on data. There's certainly ethical issues involved. And I see IO psychology as having a rich uh, background there, uh, whereas on the data science side, some of those processes are set up based on different types of data that may not necessarily be drawn directly from people. Mm-hmm. And so there's a nice uh, opportunity intersection point there. And that's been a strong trend we've been seeing within our field. We even have a, uh, a conference coming up later this year focused specifically on that topic. And that's where I think the overlap occurs and where we can we can pull in some of the tools from the data science community, uh, but at the same time, we, we want to be able to share some of our knowledge about people uh, needs to be handled appropriately. Right. Let's shift gears a little bit. You've talked about sort of the, the new forms of data, but you also mentioned a couple times how important it is to communicate those findings and that analysis to uh, different types of audiences. So I'm curious how data visualization comes into play in your field and how important it is and, and how people are embracing data visualization or maybe they're not embracing data visualization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've certainly seen the thirst for it increase. And I think it relates to a lot of the earlier trends we talked about with just the sheer amount of data that organizations are looking to process and process quickly. So the, the pace of business and the, uh, the pressure towards uh, rapid decision making really hasn't changed. But at the same time, the amount of data ha- has, has increased. And I think that's something that likely occurs across many fields. When that pressure point occurs, when those two trends collide, that's where the, the visualization opportunity comes in and why visualization is so valuable in, in our field as well as others uh, with the, of course, the perceptual skills we can bring to how data are explored and, and ultimately explained uh, to that broader audience. I think for IO psychologists, we often are in a, a very direct liaison or translator role between really science and business. So translating the complexity of the data into uh, what business is going to find as 
uh, intelligence that's going to drive their actions forward. And so you've got the data perspective, but then you've also got the the business uh, tension on making decisions as, as a result of that. Uh, what you also have in many cases is a, a very uh, mixed audience in terms of technical depth. Uh, so certainly uh, the, the rate of analysts and, and technically skilled individuals is growing within organizations, but likely not at the same rate that data are being factored into decision making. So the range of individuals who are making decisions based on data has expanded uh, much more quickly than the pure quantitative analyst role. And so uh, that's an opportunity, of course, to use visualization as that uh, explanatory tool, translation tool to uh, convey the complexity of data in a way that you can draw in a broader audience. And of course, that audience has a tremendously valuable perspective with what they know about business. They may not uh, be quantitative analysts in the same way, but visualization is a is a way to connect data to, to them and, and them mm-hmm. to the data and, and use that to guide decisions as a result. Right. I want to ask about the challenges that people in your field have with data visualization. I mean, it sounds like you have a similar challenge that lots of people face, which is a diverse audience, some with technical skills who sort of understand the concepts and other people who don't. But are there specific challenges that come with, in in some ways, trying to match the employer and the employee together when it comes to visualizing data that, that may be sort of distinct or unique from other fields? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think, I think you're right. There's, There's certainly quite a bit of, of overlap. I do think that uh, particularly when you get into applications of data visualization that are designed to extend across an entire organization, and that's uh, it's a wide range of jobs, a wide range of roles, a wide range of experiences. I do think that that audience tends to vary tremendously on their level of really visual literacy, and uh, so the ability to provide data in a format. Uh, to visualize it in a way that connects with that broad audience is is certainly as critical in, in our field as others. You know, I, I think that the you know some of the challenges that again it's you know it's hard to say if they're entirely unique, but I certainly feel them uh, pretty uh, pretty profoundly in the work that I do. I think one example is of the what I sometimes think of as the five second rule for for visualization. So uh, if someone doesn't get it in five seconds, then they, they think it's not doing the job. They they really have to move on, and I think that that can be a very uh, that can be a challenge when you're dealing with complex data. So not not every data set can be simplified uh, so that someone can instantly understand it within within just a few seconds. In some cases, the goal actually is to within that within a limited amount of time to actually engage someone with the with the data, not just have them fully understand it. So that's the factor. I think the bias for action is there, uh, you know, certainly driven by business pressures. Again, I may not be entirely unique to to business settings, but uh, the the actionability of data it can't just be interesting it uh, has to have the ability of driving some some decision mm-hmm. uh, one that I think is uh, you know, might might fall a little bit in the unique area potentially is uh, and this is I think a, a, something that even IO psychologists struggle with at times is that we do have a, a deep research heritage a lot of that is based on statistical significance testing for how we present and analyze data. And visualization, in some ways, pushes the the statistical analyses into the background a bit, and it can lead to something that I, I sometimes think of as optical significance. So, uh, so a, a trend in the data that someone might might see and want to take action on, uh, but that doesn't have the corresponding uh, statistical rigor yeah. behind it. Right, and that's something that can be can be challenging for for an IO psychologist to guide decision makers through and help them navigate through yeah. that topic. Yeah. Now, just 
just one other I'd mention is uh, that many senior leaders and organizations have built their career on the strength of their their gut instinct, their experience. And in many ways, the orientation towards data-driven decision-making, whether it be visual or other types of, of analytics, that can be threatening for senior decision-makers. So visualization, while it can be a communication tool, uh, it also puts increased attention on using data to drive decisions, which uh, isn't always compatible with the organizational culture and, and the skills of the, the current leadership in that organization. Right. That's really interesting, especially the, the this sort of I like this this optical significance because it's true. You show someone a bar chart and they think it all really matters, but maybe it's just statistically they're not that different. So that's that's really interesting. When it comes to creating visualizations, and, and you work with a lot of people in, in uh, obviously at DDI and in the field more generally with helping them mm-hmm. uh, do a better job with their visualizations, what are some of the biggest mistakes you think that people make, either in in IOPsych or or more broadly? Sure. So I, th- I think the, the first one that comes to mind is that people are using tools to create visualization, whether it be a, a tool like Excel, for example, that they're using to create visualizations. They often are generating a visualization directly from the tool, and that, that, becomes, that becomes the final visualization. So they're using all the defaults of, of colors and formats and borders and all the other uh, aspects that go into the data, or you know, even just through uh, how they how they build the visualization, if if they're not closely attentive to how those visual properties are actually affecting the message and the clarity of the message, I think the overuse of those defaults uh, can lead to a very cluttered and, and ultimately uh, more con- much more confusing visual than it needs to be. Uh, and so, you know, I think what that leads to is you're using visual cues, and again, color is a great example. But but shading, whether you're uh, or whether you're receding some of the the data into the background by using gray versus some some selective color highlighting, there's a tendency to really overuse visual cues for what really are trivial or, or not important properties uh, for the data. Mm-hmm. Another one I would I would call out is the neglect for what I think of as the annotation layer uh, that sits on top of the visualization. So it's rare that the visualization itself will, will tell the full story on its own. The analyst has done so much work to get to that point, and they need to take some additional steps to add some annotations, or in some cases it's as simple as the title, or something that really makes it clear what someone should should see in the data, what what the analysis has brought to that point in adding those annotations to the data. So it's it's rarely the case that a visualization will be fully ready to share just coming straight out of really any package someone is using to, to visualize. Just a couple other I would add, I think there's a there's sometimes a neglect of the opportunity to apply visualization techniques to open-ended data. And mm-hmm. in, in our field we deal with organizations who are pulling in a large number of customer comments or employee comments, for example, so that open-ended form of data, I, th- I think sometimes gets gets missed as an opportunity to apply visualization to how they make sense of and, and take action on uh, the unstructured forms of data. And then uh, I'd finally call out the fact that I think I think in many cases uh, individuals will revert back to the, the standard forms of, of visualization, uh, like a pie chart, for example, which of mm-hmm. course has its own uh, challenges, or, or even bar charts and column charts, which can be very appropriate in many cases. Bar charts and column charts, in particular, they can present a very clean view of the data. But I think there's an opportunity for 
uh, individuals to go a bit beyond the, the standard tools. And I've been real excited by some of the research coming out that shows that some of the more unique visualization types can ultimately be more memorable. Yeah. Uh, and I think people don't, don't always remember the mundane. They remember things that are a bit more unique. And I think if individuals and organizations aren't taking that into account to try to learn about some of these new techniques and build them in and try them out, experiment with them, uh, they may be maybe missing an opportunity to draw on some of the more powerful and, and unique visualization types out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. You hit on one of my big pet peeves, which is using the defaults in any tool. For some reason, defaults in most tools are just plain terrible. Um, mm-hmm. There are um, a few things in the field, in the data visualization field, that get people sort of riled up, right? Like there's the pie chart debate, there's the colorblindness issue, there's mm-hmm. dual access debates. Do you have, right. uh, you know, and, and people tend to take strong lines <laughs> on those. Do you, are there any of those sorts of issues where you're like, you're militant or, you know, have really <laughs> strong feelings, like absolutely no pie charts ever? Or, right, uh, right. you know, are there any of those sorts of things that really get you, you know, heated up that really get you upset when, when people do that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think, uh, I do think pie charts, you know, I feel like once you get into the data visualization field, it's, it's kind of almost a rite of passage to really take a hard <laughs> look at yourself and when you're, what you're really thinking about pie charts. And, uh, certainly if, you know, I always put that when I talk about them, I, I kind of, I usually put a parenthetical around it. Like if you must, then right, right. there are some ways that you can use pie charts effectively, but generally, uh, it's 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 going to be the the wrong choice much more often than the right choice. Yeah. I think your your point about color is a fabulous one because color uh, there are first of all it's a, it's a powerful visual property that that is dramatically overused. I think these these rainbow color scales or even the red yellow green scales yeah. which we see so often in, in dashboards and other. Uh, business applications those those have many challenges to them there's challenges with how you use a rainbow scale with continuous data for example versus categorical data or the other aspect that we do run into because we we work with multinational companies in many cases is that color doesn't mean the same thing globally uh, so red is a great example where uh, red is seen as the the low category it's the the, the warning signs the 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 issues, the problems in a, in a data set or in a dashboard, but in some cultures and countries, red is is a, is a sign of is a color of celebration of, of positive uh, news. Uh, I think it's easy for people to rely on some of those uh, standard but not always accurate uh, conventions for color. I think uh, 3D is another one that uh, I tried to. Uh, get out of the, the visualization as quickly as I can. And I think that along with pie charts, I think it's it's a feature of the data. It adds nothing to the clarity of the data. And, and in fact, it, it often obscures the data because yeah. you're adding in a, a dimension of the data that doesn't contribute towards a higher accu- accuracy. Right. Um, I talked earlier about the one of the one of the phrases that really um, will get me up on my soapbox pretty quickly is that, that visualization uh, is about simplifying the complex. And that, that can be true, but uh, we live in a complex world and not everything can be simplified. And I think of it as conveying the complex. And I think simplifying the com- complex as a phrase actually minimizes the potential of visualization to navigate an audience through the complexity, but you can't always simplify it yeah. uh, because there is there's true true depth to the data that uh, you often don't want to to strip away with something that's uh, overly simplistic. Um, I mentioned the annotation and and the the use or not, or not use of the annotation. Uh, one one other uh, technique that you know when we think about best practices is around uh, the small multiples approach uh, to visualization, and that's that's often an antidote to 
uh, someone trying to layer too much on on just one graph in one visual versus a small multiples approach, which will take more of a panel view to split that data out across geographic regions, for example, or across different variables. So rather than trying to pack them all onto the same graph to the point where it's really it's really impossible to to see the trends, to pull them apart uh, really uh, can can add quite a bit of clarity to the message. Yeah. Those are a few of my, uh, yeah, those are, I guess, combination of pet few, right? and best practices. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to, I want to close up just by, by talking about tools for a moment. You've written a few things, uh, a few posts on, on tools and resources that people, um, should use or can use, I guess, for, for their data and their data visualization needs. Are there particular tools or platforms that you think are especially useful, especially for people who might, you know, just be getting their feet wet with, with data visualization? Absolutely. And I think your last point is such an important one because the audience is so broad. You know, what I try to, what I target is something that I think of as really guerrilla data visualization. So what are, what are some tools that you can pick up and get up and running quickly? So a, a very quick learning curve. Uh, generally, I do try to orient people towards tools that are, that are free or available already on their computers. And obviously, there's, there's many other layers of, of commercial tools that, that sit on top of that. But frankly, I, I often find that I can do whatever I want with the tools that I either have or, or that are freely available. And I think that's a huge strength of, of the data visualization uh, interest over the past few years as many more of these coming online. Uh, so, so to get specific, the, one of the tools that I uh, find absolutely uh, fantastic and, and use it almost daily at times is a tool called raw. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's raw.densitydesign.org. And it's, it's an extremely easy to use tool for generating a very wide range of visualization types. So when, when you're looking to experiment with, uh, some, some new visualization types that really bring clarity to, to complex data, uh, I see that tool as, as really well suited to that. You could actually drop data directly in from, uh, from a, a table form into the, the interface and with a few clicks build some very engaging uh, forms of visualizations. You can actually then export that, export those files into a graphics editor and, and do additional annotation or, or color changing to it. Uh, I do think there's quite a bit of, there, there, there are tremendous benefits to Excel. Uh, Excel, I think, can be one of the worst offenders, uh, particularly if you stick with the defaults. Uh, but, but it can be cleaned up in a way that, that can be very powerful and, and actually can, with the right considerations, be, uh, be pretty valuable to folks. And, of course, that's something that many individuals already have access to. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a tool called Color Brewer. So when we think about color uh, and, and how the appropriate selection of color is so critical, uh, Color Brewer is a phenomenal site for helping you pick color palettes that, first of all, allow you to represent data in an accurate way when you're looking across the color scale, uh, but also to avoid issues with color blindness or making something print friendly. Uh, a couple of that I would also call out uh, when looking at text analysis, there's a tool called Voyant. Uh, which I find uh, extremely useful for exploring text-based data. So if you're dealing with comments or any type of unstructured uh, word-oriented data, that could be valuable. There's, a, there's also another site called uh, WordTree, uh, which also allows you to look for key patterns in, in data, what types of words are often used uh, together. 
so those are that's by I guess my short list of sorts of uh, of tools that are, that are my go to uh, sources. What I tend to be using. There's, there's many others beyond that, but I, th- I do think that someone getting started in visualization doesn't have to come up with a huge list, nor do they have to spend immense, an immense amount of time to at least experiment with tools like those. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think the I think you have that exactly right. It's for the people who are the beginners or even, you know, waist deep or even neck deep, it all sort of depends on who you're trying to communicate with and maybe Excel or raw or some of these other tools you've mentioned are, are all that's needed. And maybe you don't need to learn JavaScript, but uh, people get excited about that. Everybody wants to create what the New York times is doing these days. So, uh, <laughs> well, Evan, this has been uh, really interesting, uh, really interested in learning about this field IO psych. So uh, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, sharing all this, uh, all this great uh, information. Absolutely, John. I really appreciate it. This was uh, it's fun to fun to talk through these topics, and uh, certainly a great uh, great admirer of your work as well. So thanks so much for having me on the, the podcast. Ah, thanks so much, and thanks to everyone else for uh, tuning in and listening to this week's show. Please feel free to let me know if you have any comments or thoughts or suggestions about changes to the show or other guests that you'd like to hear from. So please feel free to drop me a line on the website or on Twitter or via email. So. Until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of the Policy Viz Podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump's powerful, easy-to-use visualization capabilities allow you to both explore your data for hidden insights and create interactive graphics that tell a compelling story. Enhance your presentations with dynamic graphics powered by world-class analytics in Jump. Visit www.jmp.com to download a 30-day free trial to see for yourself how with Jump, data visualization and exploratory analysis go hand in hand.